For the last few centuries, Western civilization has been relatively free from the mass governmental oppression and persecution that is seen in many places in the world. We've been relatively blind to it, too. We don't really think about it much, right? To think about persecution, to think about suffering, to think about the fact that there are churches and people who are threatened, endangered because of different oppression. Now, we've thought about it more this decade, for sure. I mean, you have the Afghan crisis where Afghanistan churches are being threatened by al-Qaeda, sent letters, and all these different things that uh, have come out to light. You know, China cracking down on house churches. We've been forced to think about it more, but we don't really sympathize with it much. We don't really engage in it as much. It's just, it seems so far away, the other side of the planet. Now, sadly, uh, the fact that we've been relatively blind to the fact that people suffer for their faith has lulled the Western church, especially the American church, into thinking that such comfort Security, liberty, is an accurate representation of what an ordinary Christian life is really like. We just kind of lulled ourselves into thinking this is normal. To, to be comfortable, to be in a spacious place, to have air-conditioned uh, uh, worship center, to have the right mixture of sound and speakers and lights, so that we can see properly and hear properly, to have instruments, to be able to sing at the top of our lungs without fear of anyone overhearing. We actually hope people overhear here. But there are places in the world that they have to sing in whispers. They can't sing the great I am because it just goes too high. The bars are way too loud. Things like drums and guitar, they're just not, they're not allowed in that kind of setting. They'll echo, and then the game is up. There are Afghan pastors today that are still faithfully ministering in Afghanistan. The whole country's not all lost. There's churches and Christians there that are faithfully plodding along, who've received death threats, who've had knocks on the door. We have churches in Syria, where the worst of the worst were what was happening just a few years ago, where Christians were actually being beheaded for their faith. But for some reason, we, we just don't connect with that. We're Americans. Suffering is just not something that we do well. It's not something that we actually expect. And, and, I, and I think in many ways, we have convinced ourselves that suffering is something that's out of place. That when we suffer, this is abnormal. When we suffer, it's uncommon. When we're uncomfortable, when our security is threatened, when our lives are at stake, when our freedoms are at stake, that that is not normal history. I think if you take a broad view of history through the ages, I think you'll find that it's our experience, it's the times of peace and quiet that are relatively abnormal and uncommon in this world. This, your experience of this, comfy chairs, carpeted worship center, this is actually the uncommon thing in the world. As those who live as exiles, that's what scripture calls us in 1 Peter, that we're the exiles, the sojourners, those who've been dispersed throughout the world. Um, those who live here, but this isn't our home. This isn't the land that we're promised. This isn't the, the ultimate destination where we're headed. This is just somewhere we're passing through. That, that as exiles, it is actually quite normal to face hardship. It's, it's the fact that we live as exiles in the city of man, in this world, that we must understand that hostility from the world Oppression, persecution is par for the course. Par for the course. Now, we might get better than that at seasons, but we shouldn't be surprised when they come. We shouldn't be surprised and pushed off our balance, pushed off our foundation when those times actually come. Given that fact that suffering is par for the course in the Christian life, that that is normative, not comfortable walking with Jesus, but actually suffering and hurting and sweating and bleeding 
and being tortured even in some cases for the faith. That that's normal. I think it's better for us to accept the fact that suffering is not something that can be avoided. Think about how much of our lives is spent turning away from, running away from, fleeing from, being afraid of hardship. We just run from it. And then I think if we're honest about what Christian life, what the Christian life actually is, we can get to a place, not only that we accept that suffering is normal, but we can go even further and see that hardship, suffering, and hostility in this world is the stage upon God's faith, on which God's faithfulness and goodness is displayed. Isn't that crazy to think about? That God doesn't just permit suffering to happen. He permits suffering to occur so that his own sovereignty, his own goodness, his own faithfulness and love can be displayed for you. I mean, just think about where would we be without the suffering of Golgotha? I mean, it's on that kind of suffering through the execution of a cross that God displays glory, goodness, Mercy, peace, victory. So I, I, I've, got, I've got several points today. Let me be clear on what I'm not saying. Not making any kind of connections to the political world in which we live today. So don't try to fill in the blanks. I am talking about the normal Christian life. That's my goal. Through the span of history... Really, since the time that Jesus died and rose again to now. That's, that's my view. I, we live in this time, but our time isn't that much different from all this time that we've had. So I just want to open your eyes to what a normal Christian life has looked like for people over the last 2,000 years of Christ's death and resurrection. And really what it looked like even before that, before Jesus came. For like people like Esther. As it will be seen in the book of Esther, in Esther chapter 3, Haman meant to hurt and kill and oppress the people of God. And yet, if God is sovereign, and if God truly intends good for his people, then even Haman's oppression is momentarily allowed in order to display God's goodness. Just think about where it would be without books like Esther in the Bible. Like, what if God nipped it in the bud? Maybe Haman died from a stroke at night. That's, that may be what we want to have happen. So why would God, if he's a good God and a sovereign God, allow Haman, the snake, to slither up through the cracks to the throne of Persia? Can I just tell you the truth about God's wisdom? Sometimes he allows people to exalt themselves so that he can display his glory and sovereignty when he topples them. He tells Pharaoh that. I have exalted you so that all the nations of the earth will know that I am God. It is the same thing here in Esther chapter 3. Without Haman's murderous plot, we would be missing a phenomenal example of how God sovereignly intervenes and saves his people. It's because of these stories of redemption, like the one we find in Esther chapter 3, that we can trust God's love and God's sovereignty to see us through any hardship. We're going to see just how bad it gets here in just a moment. Esther 3 opens by describing a conflict between two men, Mordecai and a newly exalted prince named Haman. Haman's rise to power was sudden, I think in some ways unexpected. Mordecai was the one who discovered the assassination plot. He should have been the one rewarded. He's probably the one that should have been given an office. But he's forgotten in between Esther chapter 2 and Esther chapter 3. The king forgets to reward Mordecai. It's Haman who's given the office. Haman that's exalted. And now the lives of the Jews and every Jew in the kingdom is threatened. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him to set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So this is number two. This is the highest-ranking official in the kingdom, just beneath the king. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, 
For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. You know, the narrator never tells us why Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, but the text does seem to imply that it's something to do with the fact that he's a Jew. Don't really know what the connection is. Why would a Jew not be able to bow down to a government official? It's possible that that connection between bow down and pay homage is connecting it like worship. Josephus in his antiquities seems to take it there that the king basically says that Haman's to be worshiped, reverenced, and that as a good Jew, Mordecai couldn't do that. He couldn't bow down. He couldn't pay this kind of homage to this government official. I'm not really sure. It doesn't really tell us because the point isn't his motives for why he didn't bow. It just tells us he didn't bow. So his rationale and reasons notwithstanding, I think there's more behind the scenes than we initially see between these two men at the gate. What is actually behind this conflict? This is why we must be good Bible readers. If you want to understand Esther... You have to understand the background, the historical background of the tension that's involved here. You have to go all the way back. If you want to understand why there is now this showdown between an Agagite and a son of Kish, you have to go all the way back to Israel's first king in the book of 1 Samuel. It's there in 1 Samuel 15 that God commanded Saul, a son of Kish, a Benjamite, to destroy the Amalekites, whose king was named Agag. This is just Agag versus a son of Kish 2.0. It's just a carryover of all of that. God commands that Saul is to completely destroy the Amalekites. He's to wipe them out, leave none of them alive even their livestock. This is the biblical law of harem, right? Where when God condemns someone, they're completely condemned. They're not to keep one ounce of gold, not one ounce of silver, not one lamb, not one donkey, and not one human being from this nation is to survive. Now, I think at this point, it's worth stopping and dealing with this because when we get to this part of the history, modern people, I think, rightly begin to scratch their heads a little bit. We begin to squirm when we think about God commanding that an entire people groups to be wiped out, right? That's, that's bizarre. That's, isn't, that, isn't that the reason why so many moderns now are thinking about God as a genocidal, vindictive tyrant? I mean, we, we hear that argument all the time. How can a good God demand the death of an entire people group? Well, let's deal with it. For one thing, God is not a man who is deciding the fate of his fellow creatures. We're not talking about a Hitler who, as a man, decides to wipe out an entire group of other men. We're talking about a God who's not on the same playing field. And as the creator, as divine, as the one that has created life and even given life to these people, the Amalekites, he is the only being in all the universe qualified to decide who should live and who should die. No mere mortal has that right. This is God's right. Second, let's talk about why this is actually a good thing that God does things like this. He is the divine judge of the nations. My friends, we're individuals, right? So if I decide as an individual to kill someone, I'm held accountable I have to go and stand before a jury and submit to a jury and what they think I have done. I have to go and stand trial. I have to go and face a judge for sentencing. But when an entire people group decides to commit evil atrocities, who do they answer to? Are they just left to themselves? Are they just left to do whatever they want? This is where, from a biblical viewpoint, we believe that God is the God of the nations, and he's the one that judges. Individuals answer to the law of the land. Individuals answer to human judges and human juries. Entire nations answer to God and to his law. 
So again, we're not talking about a mere man deciding what will happen to other mere men. We're talking about God creator deciding what's going to happen with these Amalekites, people he created, people he gives life to, and he's being a just and good God. The Amalekites committed incredible atrocities. They hated Israel. They tried to kill Israel. They wanted to annihilate Israel. And not only that, they were busy burning their own kids to idols. Amazing atrocities. Human sacrifices. Now, if you heard that a man burnt his kid out on the front lawn, you would expect the law of the land to do something about that. Well, there's an entire nation doing that. And so God, as a just God, does something about it, which proves both both his justice and his goodness. So we're not talking about genocide. We're talking about judgment. We're talking about a divine God doing this. Now, God has given his sentencing as the divine judge. These people have committed atrocities. They must be judged. Their children's blood needs vindication. His people's blood needs vindication. They must die. Execution sentence is set. And so it's up to Saul to obey. God has told him what to do. And yet Saul disobeyed and spared the Amalekite king and took whatever good, whatever looked good and was beautiful to him, and he took it for himself. It wasn't until Samuel the prophet comes and confronts Saul that King Agag finally met his fate and justice was served. But somehow in the meantime... Agag's name survived. We don't really know how. We don't know if there's children from Agag that have escaped because of Saul's delayed disobedience. We don't know if in the meantime, maybe Saul's brokering a relationship. We, we, I think there's some kind of political thing happening here between Saul and Agag. So does Does Saul give Agag kind of a cush life, maybe an Israelite wife in the meantime? How much time did it take between the war with the Amalekites and Samuel's confrontation? We don't know. Whatever it is, Agag's name has survived, and it now resurfaces in the days of Mordecai in Persia more than 500 years later. As a word of warning... The Bible is filled with examples of how one generation's disobedience leads to problems in future generations. Abraham faithlessly sleeps with Hagar, and guess where that leads? Isaac and Ishmael are now in tension together. Solomon marries women from the other nations who have not repented of their idolatry, and next thing you know, Israel is swamped with idols, and God says that the whole nation will be torn in two after his death as a consequence. In 1 Samuel, Saul's disobedience continues to send these negative reverberations 500 years into the future. Can I just, can we stop for a moment and see the nature of sin here? The events of Esther would have never happened had Saul obeyed and obeyed fully, and obeyed quickly. But it was because of his partial obedience, a.k.a. his full disobedience, that Agag survives and then lives another day to try to kill the Jews again. I just wonder, what kinds of sins do we harbor that might send reverberations into the future that we may never live to see? You see, this doesn't just happen on a national level. This happens at an individual level. How many generations of families have been destroyed because of the sins of dad? Dad's addictions, mom's vindictiveness, dad's anger problem, dad's alcoholism, mom's inability to make peace with other people, hostilities and feuds that pop up. How many generations of family have been completely left in ruin because of the sins of one couple? And it doesn't just happen on family levels. It can happen on church levels too. How many churches have been left to spiritually drift? What kinds of church? You think gospel drift in churches happens overnight? No, it happens because congregations generations before started the drift. 
We might be faithful now, but if we allow sin to continue to happen, if we don't practice things like church discipline, if we don't do things like gospel centrality, where we don't talk about politics, we talk about the gospel, how much worse will it be the next generation? and the next generation, and the next generation, to where your kids and your kids' kids no longer hear the gospel from this pulpit because of the drift that started in our generation. Do you see why your actions matter? Sin never affects just you. It was never meant to. If sin only affected us, the serpent would have been wasting his time tempting Eve. I think the serpent knew better than what Adam and Eve knew. They had never known sin. They thought it only involved them, and yet it ruined humanity forever just from disobeying God at a fruit tree. Now we've introduced things like pornography. We've introduced things like affairs. We've introduced things like pride and greed and power struggle. My friends, those little idiosyncrasies that you call idiosyncrasies in yourself, those little things that you know that you're not living in obedience to God, that will swell to massive disobedience and have massive ramifications in generations to come. There are people watching you. There are people that will pay, that will pay for the sin prices that you agree to right now. That's just the nature of sin. And I think it's worth just, I, you can't understand this, this war between a son of Kish and Haman the Agagite unless you understand that their war started 500 years before because of one man's disobedience. But it goes even beyond that. The showdown between a son of Agag and a son of Kish not only proves that old hostilities in 1 Samuel 15 haven't cooled, but it also points back to an even older conflict, much, much more ancient, between an ancient serpent and God's people in the garden. If you know the book of Genesis, then you know that there's been a war raging ever since man's fall in the garden. Genesis 3.15. That the serpent had come into the garden, and the satanic serpent swayed the hearts of humanity and turned them not just away from their creator, but against their creator. His one and only goal was the ruination of all that is good and innocent and perfect. And he succeeded at causing Adam and Eve to drift and rebel. And in the aftermath of their sin, God speaks of death, pain, sweat, tears, strife, turning back to dust. But it's even in the midst of that, that we hear about this ongoing struggle. The offspring of the serpent, those who in the rebellion identify with and follow after the arrogant serpent, and the offspring of the woman, those who put their trust in the Lord in humble faith, there's going to be a constant tension between them. You hear it in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, strife, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You see, humanity's not divided by ethnicity. Humanity's not divided by socioeconomic backgrounds. Humanity's not divided into political parties. Humanity in Genesis is divided on two bases offspring of the woman, offspring of the serpent. That's the only valid division in all of humanity. And you can't see that line outside of faith in Jesus. What defines offspring of the woman? Well, they obey and trust in the Lord. That's who the offspring of the woman is. Offspring of the servants, anyone that opposes God and his people. And from that moment on, throughout all history, this invisible war has been raging. This struggle, this conflict, where the offspring of the serpent hates God, but they can't lay hands on him. So they're going to lay hands on God's people. That's, that's what's going on. Now, between all the, the proposed wars and secret struggles and the secret conflicts that are out there, this one's real. This one's biblical. 
Satan hates God and he hates his people. And so do all who follow after him. That's the war that's going on. It happens in Genesis. It happens in Exodus as an arrogant Pharaoh decides to stand up and shrewdly deal with the Hebrews by enslaving and killing the young boys. It happens as King Saul, who takes on the role of the servant, tries to obsessively hunt down David to kill him. It happens in Daniel, where the king's advisors get jealous of Daniel's power. So they decide to trap him by saying, whoever prays to another God outside of the king must die. It happens between Sanballat and Nehemiah. You see, every nation's involved in this conflict at some level. It's not just Egyptians, it's Egyptians and Syrians. It's not just Syrians, it's Israelites. King Saul, tribe of Benjamin, offspring of the serpent, hating the offspring of the woman. And we see it again here as Haman plots against Mordecai and refuses to be happy and content until Mordecai and all of Mordecai's people lie dead at his feet. That's what he wants. The enmity eventually climaxes at the cross. You want to see the biggest proof where this war leads? It leads to the cross. Where you hear both John the Baptist and Jesus speaking about this brood of vipers, right? The offspring of serpents. And what do they do? They kill him. They kill him. And then he raises again, and he's able to destroy the serpent. He crushes the head of the serpent by delivering us all from death. Now, before you start, I, I just want to be careful here, because anytime we start talking about conflict and enmity, we begin trying to put faces on these people groups. We're, we're the offspring of the serpent. They, and then we come up with an image, are the offspring of the serpent. Can I just let you know, Paul speaks of us as if we were once the offspring of the serpent. Ephesians 2, we once followed after the prince of the air. Romans 3, we had venom. We had the venom of asp. You know what an asp is? It's a snake. Romans 3, speaking of you, all humanity is originally, initially, seed of the serpent. It's only by the grace of God that that borderline is porous and you're able to come over. That's the doctrine of adoption. That's why it's so necessary. We get rid of our old master. We get rid of our old father. And we get a new father in God because of Christ. So just before we begin going, yes, there's a war. Finally, we're talking about conflict. Such were you without the grace of God. We were the Hamans. We were the Persian kings. We were the pharaohs. We were the Saul of Tarsus. That God has saved and brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the domain of light. So we have to both acknowledge this, in, in, this invisible war that's raging, but we also have to have the humility to say, well, we were once the enemy. So before we put any faces to the seed of the serpent, you should remember your face was once in that crowd. That makes sense? Now, what does this do for us? I think remembering this conflict between Haman and Mordecai, I mean, this is, this is some intense historical background that goes all the way to Genesis. I think there's a couple of things that recognizing this invisible war helps us to do. Number one, it teaches us an important lesson. To be hated, oppressed, and opposed in the world is normal for God's people. That's been true since Genesis 3. I think it, it helps us to live our lives realistically. I hate to tell you this, you're not all that unique, and the time in which you live in is not all that different from Genesis 3 and all the time before. It's, it's just funny. You know, when we, we went to Brazil a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, they're having their own political strife and different things like that. There's some, some ways that they're starting to see it where they can't, they can't build churches or add on the churches because of some kind of blockage and oppression. Um, I've, I've been talking with my Chinese friends and kind of the oppression they live in. And it's just, it's funny to them that they think we think this is new. 
China has been suffering since the 1950s. Before that, when the first missionaries came back in the days of the emperor, Russian Christians have been suffering for a very long time. Venezuelans suffer. This is not this is not new. Look at your lives realistically. The conflict that you're feeling and the conflict that you're seeing between God's people and those who hate God, that's not all that unique. It's just a realistic view of life. This is normal being part of the people of God. You lived in the days of Judges, it wouldn't have been any better. You lived in the days of the Exodus, it wouldn't have been any better. The fact of the matter is, Satan and those who follow him have always hated God's people. Don't be so surprised by that fact. Yet we act like it's shocking news when we hear that persecution comes. We act like it's shocking news when oppression comes. The world's headlines are saying, get with the program. This thing has been going on for centuries and millennia and a lot longer than you care to believe. Second, I think it teaches us what we must do. Not only does it teach us to think realistically, right? We're not all that unique. This isn't a unique time in history. It's a very normal time in history. I think it also teaches us to patiently persevere. How have God's people lasted in ages past? By persevering, patiently. A quiet trust in God. We come like Peter with the rest of history's disciples and say, to whom else would we go? We stick with Jesus through all kinds of conflict, Nazi invasions. We stick with Jesus. Russian revolutions. We stick with Jesus. God forbid someday there's a Canadian invasion. We stick with Jesus. (laughs) We persevere. We're like a foot fungus that never goes away. (laughs) To the glory of God. My friends, what must we do in this day and age? What must we do? Give us real applications of how God expects us to live. He wants you to keep going. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for you now. That's what he wants for you tomorrow. That's what he wants for you next week. That's what he wants from you next year. That's what he wants from you a decade from now. And Lord willing, you're still here five decades from now, which many of us won't be. He still wants that from us. Stick with Jesus. Persevere patiently. Now third, I think it teaches us in this war between the serpent and the seed of the woman, who we must trust. We are not the ones who win this war. God is. You go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there's enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, but it's one offspring of the woman who definitively, decisively ends the battle. We trust in Jesus. We stick with Jesus. We trust in Jesus. My friends, you go off and build a new nation tomorrow on some island that's not been discovered yet. Enmity will follow you there, and it still relies on Jesus. We learn how to not fight, not flee, not fear, but to trust the king who has definitively crushed the head of the serpent. It will be Jesus. It will be his kingship. It will be in his time that the ancient dragon of old is chained up and thrown into the abyss, never to harass us anymore. Until then, keep calm and carry on. Move along. Follow Jesus. Cling to him. Now, all that, you may wonder, wow, we've gotten a long way from Esther chapter 3. But my hope is is that you're beginning to feel kind of the burden that they are in, kind of where they're going. What's happening here? What would you do if you were Mordecai and Esther? What would you do if you were just some poor Jew that owned a shop front in the streets of Persia and your worst enemy has now been exalted to the number two in the kingdom. I mean, this is 
political tragedy here. I mean, this is, this is devastating. Worse than if Hitler would, would be elected president in the United States. I mean, this is a death sentence to them. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. That's Psalm 37, verse 7. You know, Haman doesn't fall because Mordecai stabs him in some dark corner and assassinates him. Haman doesn't die because the Jews all rally and beat him with a club. Haman dies because they wait on the Lord and the Lord topples him. If he raises up princes, he's the one who brings them down. That's a very simple fact about it, right? It's in his timing, his way. He's the sovereign one. And we're, he's the one we must wait on. Now, when Haman is told that Mordecai refuses to bow down, he's filled with fury. I think it's interesting that the actual Hebrew can be translated, he's filled with venom. Okay, you got that serpent language in there. He's filled with venom. He's been ticked off by Mordecai, stepped on by Mordecai. Now he's ready to strike. He's ready to bite back. In verse six, we find out this. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought also to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This just unleashes this fury, this venom, this hatred that's going to impact every family in the kingdom in some way. All of God's people. He decides to cast lots, right? Pure, right? From the month of Nisan to the month of Adar. So it's about a year here, right? From the first of the month to the... He starts in January and ends in December. Okay, that's what he's doing. He's casting lots. He picks a day. What day? He picks a day in which the Jews are going to be all exterminated as if they were pests in the kingdom. Now, it's interesting because if you know your, your Hebrew calendar, then you know that Passover was celebrated on the same month that Haman begins to cast lots. Isn't that interesting little connection there? God did this once before. Pharaoh said that he was going to kill all the Jews, and then the Passover comes. Here we have another Pharaoh from a different nation, in a different land, outside of Israel, who again says he's going to kill all the Jews, and he begins casting lots on the very same month that these Jews are remembering back on Passover. I think it's just a subtle detail that shows us that God has done it once, he'll do it again. God has saved his people before, and there will never not be a time God doesn't save his people. Do you hear that? We have, we have example after example after example of scripture that shows us why we can trust the Lord. Why do my kids trust that they're going to eat lunch today? Because there has never been a day that goes, goes by that I, as their father, have not provided some form of lunch that Rachel has cooked. <laughs> because if it were up to me, they wouldn't have eaten. But the faithfulness of their parents, day after day after day, has made it so now it's not a question. They'll eat today. My friends, why can't we have the same trust of God? There's never not been a moment he hasn't intervened in this people's salvation. There's never been a moment that God's people have been wiped out. There's never been a moment that any kind of government oppressor, any kind of nation that set themselves up against God has ever been able to get a leg up on him. Are we secretly fearful that maybe this time they will? Or do we trust? Do we trust? God's never been beaten. His promises have never failed. And they won't now. And they won't tomorrow and they won't the next day. I think it's important for us to remember as this happens on the month of Passover, that God will intervene once again. So he sets the date. He decides this is the time when they're going to die. And then he goes in before the king. Now, how do you get a king to sign off on the extinction of an entire people group in his own nation? Like, I mean, these aren't outside invaders. Now, if it had been the Greeks, you don't have to have an excuse, right? Because we're at war with the Greeks. But how do you convince a Persian king 
to kill people inside the kingdom? Well, very simply, you just say they're different. They're different. And we're going to kill them because of that. Here's what he says. There is a certain people, notice he didn't even name them. There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So that is, it is not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they should be destroyed. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge in the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. Haman's careful not to name them directly. He just says there's a certain people group. Their laws are different. There's been times that they haven't obeyed us, like was true with Daniel, who happened before this, right? Where Daniel prayed, even though it was against the law. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are yet another group of Jews who refuse to bow. So he's looking back on all this. He goes, they, they're different. And there have been moments when they've disobeyed. Therefore, kill them. My friends, Haman's not unique in this. This is, this is the way the world does. In AD 112, after Jesus' death and ascension, resurrection and ascension, in AD 112, Pliny the Younger, a Roman governor, doesn't know what to do with these Christians. They're weird. They get together, they talk about the Lord's Supper, where they talk about eating a man's body. You know, he actually was worried that these Christians were committing cannibalism because of the way they described the, the Lord's Supper. They dunk one another in water. Are they trying to drown each other? What do we do with them? So he writes to the emperor, Emperor Trajan, and he just says, I don't know what to do with them. I think we should kill them. They're different. <laughs> emperor Trajan says, well, you can't do that openly. Right? But if you find out they're Christians, then you can punish them, but don't go hunting for them. So praise God for that consensus, right? <laughs> as long as you don't see them out openly doing it, then leave them alone. But if you see them out openly and they confess to being Christians, then you can kill them. What a great empire we lived in, right? What religious liberty we had. It's been done today, it's still today. Go to China. Why, why oppress Christians? What harm are they doing to the Chinese government? Well, they confess another king. They talk about the sovereignty of Jesus, not the sovereignty of the Chinese empire. They don't mind having TSPM sanctioned churches as long as no one ever claims there's a God over the Chinese government. But it's that distinction that makes us different and dangerous. You go to Iran, we believe in a Jesus the, the son of God who took on flesh, who died to take my burden. Well, the Quran says that no one can die to take your burden and God would never take on flesh. We're different. So we're dangerous. Haman comes with the same argument. They're different and they're dangerous. And then he agrees to pay the, I mean, well, I mean he's like, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver to let me do this. And, and you would hope that at some point in this government system, right? This is a worldwide empire at this point. I mean, it's from India to, to uh, up in Macedonia. I mean, it's, it's huge. It's the largest empire that's existed up to this point in human history. Greece will surpass it. Rome will surpass that. But at this point, Persia is the biggest empire. It's normal to be a Persian citizen at this point because that's the civilized territory. You would hope that in civilization like that, that maybe the king would say, well, let's open an investigation. Let's find out who these people are and let's get evidence that they actually are dangerous. King Xerxes doesn't work like that. You'll pay for it. Okay. That was the fate of the Jews. Can you imagine having people in a room, the most powerful people in the world, having a discussion about what to do about you and your family, whether you should die or not, not even opening an investigation and deciding in a matter of moments that you should be killed. You, your children, your women, and all your stuff taken. You think it's bad now? It's been way worse before. God's people have seen a lot of stuff. 
we've been in a lot tougher times. Haman quite literally wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Sounds like somebody else we know, right? He's, he's completely vehemently against these people. And what's worse, the king doesn't care. The man that could stop it doesn't. He says, the money's given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Can you imagine living in a government system where your worst enemy is in charge and can do with you whatever he likes? No legal restriction, no opposition, no any kind of packed process to make sure that you're handled justly. No, you can just be killed, completely vulnerable. That's the days that these people live in Persia. It's a pretty low point in the narrative. He can do whatever he wants. Now, if, if, if this was any other story, it'd be hopeless. And he kind of describes that hopelessness as the king and Haman sit down to drink. In other words, Haman's here toasting to himself. He's helped the king avoid a great crisis. He's not only convinced the king that this is to his good, he's offered to pay for it, but the king hasn't even taken him up on his offer to pay the 10000 silver, decides, I'll give you the kingdom money and the kingdom's people to do whatever you want. So toast, cheers to him, right? Kind of this premature self-celebration that's happening. It's pretty dark. And if this were any other story, this would be the end of it. This would be the conclusion. But not this story. God is still God. Haman's on the throne. Xerxes is on the throne. There's no one there to stop the annihilation of God's people except for God. And he's still God. No royal edict that's been signed can thwart his sovereignty. No signet ring can stamp out his plan. He's still God. What if we had no political allies What if tomorrow all of our worst enemies rose up to the governmental throne? Well, it's happened before. As far as I can tell, God's still God. God's on the throne. It doesn't seem to stop him from doing his promises. I'm not saying we sit back. Mordecai obviously didn't like it. The Jews didn't like it. I'm not saying we sit back and do nothing, but I think there is something to say like, Why are we so worried about that? Why are we so fearful? God is still God. God is still sovereign. God is the one who's moving things in place. These piddly little princes and kings think they're sovereign, but everything is falling into place the way that God desires it to. You see, Haman sits down to drink. This foreshadows when he's going to sit down to drink again in Esther 7. See, he, he's kind of known to celebrate too early. He celebrates here in Esther 3. He comes again in Esther 7, sits down to drink, and it's at that dinner party, at that wine party, that he finds out it's he, not the Jews, that's going to die. My friends, when things get dark, that's when the light comes through. God likes us not having human, powerful advocates because it glorifies him as our one true advocate. There's a reason he led Israel to have their backs against the Red Sea. There's a reason none of them were good warriors. There's a reason they're weak and Pharaoh's strong because at the end of the day, they're going to see God is God, not Pharaoh. Your hope is not getting stronger. Your hope is staying weak and trusting the strong God that we have. I just I feel like that needs to be said constantly in our battles that we're facing. Our hope is not in us becoming more self-sufficient, us getting more power, us growing stronger. The, the challenge, the spiritual challenge for you as God's people is to stay humble and weak and trust the strength of God. God leads us to the Red Seas where there's no retreat because he's going to show he doesn't retreat. God puts these impossible giants to destroy the nation to show he's the one that doesn't need a sword. He can use a stone and a slingshot and a little boy just fine. 
He allows the Hamans to get up. Can you imagine, just again, what if Mordecai were to raise at the same time Haman did? We might credit Mordecai for the salvation of the Jews. But it's the very fact that in Persia there is no Jewish ally that we're left to glorify God who did this. How did things turn around? Because of God. This is the way that God works. God allows the dark to get darker so that we can glorify him when he shines the light of salvation. And it's in those moments, God allowed the cross to show the glory of the resurrection. And I'm a big nerd about stories. It's when Beowulf is clinched in the teeth of the dragon that the dragon dies. It's that moment at Helm's Deep, all my fellow nerds, right? It's dark, the orcs have invaded, and it's then that Tolkien says, upon a ridge appeared a rider clad in white, shining in the rising sun. And then things change. It's when Aslan lies shamefully shaved and beaten and broken and stabbed on the stone table that the white witch's power is destroyed. When are we as God's people going to learn that even when our back's against, our, against the wall, God is before us? He is our refuge and strength, a steady help in trial. He is our shield. You want, a, you want a great Bible study to start every morning off? Do a word study. Look up fortress, look up shield, look up refuge, and just see how often you see it throughout the Bible that the Lord is our shield. The Lord is our fortress. It could all go to hell in a handbasket. God is sovereign to pluck us out of hell even. The worst enemies could be in power with no help and no hope for us to ever, ever be heard. And yet God still hears our prayers. God still hears his people. You are more indestructible than you care to believe. Can I, can I just say that again? That God is faithful to do what he says? Your enemies could cheers themselves to completely making a whole new government that's opposed to you, and yet, even in their self-celebration, there's a God who knows who's going to be drinking in the end. You see, this whole thing about feasting and drinking, there's going to be a great reversal. Haman cheers himself. In the end, it's the Jews who drink the wine. And those who drink last drink best, right? I'm surprised I didn't get amen. We are a Bible church, not a Baptist church. <laughs> That is a very playable illustration in this church, okay? <laughs> Thank you. In this world, you will have what? Trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father God, we leave Haman now to sip on his wine. We leave the Jews with no political advocate. We leave them in the dark hour of the kingdom. And we trust you to work. So God, in our own darkness, we wait on you. You are our refuge and strength. God, you will eventually send Esther into the courts of Xerxes. But in the end, it will be you who gets the glory for salvation not Esther, not Mordecai, and no one else. In the same way, Father, we wait on you, our refuge, our strength, and the God of our salvation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.